When tech entrepreneur Anjana Rajan, whose expertise is applying cryptography to human rights and national security issues, joined Polaris as its chief technology officer, she thought she was setting aside her focus on domestic terrorism to help Polaris with its core mission of fighting human trafficking. But then Rajan learned that the far-right conspiracy group QAnon had been making outlandish human trafficking allegations against Polaris, resulting in massive internet denial of service or DOS attacks by QAnon followers who are even making death threats against the nonprofit. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. Many of you, of course, are familiar with QAnon from the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol and on democracy by supporters of former President Donald Trump, triggering a massive domestic terrorism investigation by U.S. authorities. Suddenly, Rajan found that her world had come full circle. Over the past year, she's had to bring all of her national security and technology skills to bear to expand Polaris's mission to investigate this nexus of human trafficking and domestic terrorism. Rajan's work and that of her Polaris team resulted in a recent report called Countering QAnon, Understanding the Role of Human Trafficking in the Disinformation Extremist Nexus. Joining me now to talk about the report and what her investigation uncovered is Anjana Rajan, who I'm happy to report is also my former colleague at Palantir. Anjana, welcome to Techtopia. Thanks so much for having me, Chitra. So we spoke almost exactly a year ago when you were moving cross-country from California to join Polaris as the CTO, just as the COVID shutdown was starting. And you are coming to Polaris with the mission to combat human trafficking. So just to uh, give a brief definition for people of what human trafficking is, how do you define human trafficking and, and, and the Polaris's mission as you knew it when you first came on board? Sure, yeah, it's hard to believe it's been a full year. Um, but Polaris's mission is to end sex and labor trafficking and to restore freedom to survivors. And our approach is to be survivor-centered, racial justice-focused, and technology-enabled. And the way we simply describe human trafficking is it's the illicit business of exploiting vulnerable people for profit. And it's a $150 billion industry with 25 million victims worldwide. And that number is only going to grow unless something changes. You've had quite a whirlwind year in which clearly everything has changed, including your perception of what you would be doing at Polaris. How did you find out about the QAnon DOS attacks on Polaris? And tell us what the group was alleging. Yeah, um, you know, when I joined Polaris, I, I didn't think that my work on domestic terrorism would be even remotely relevant. And turns out I was very wrong about that. Um, when I joined the organization, I had learned that in August of 2018, we were the target of a coordinated disinformation campaign that accused Polaris of being part of a fictitious child sex trafficking ring supposedly run by the Clinton Foundation. And this outlandish conspiracy we discovered was driven by none other than QAnon. And so that summer, QAnon followers doxed our senior staff and our board. They sent our hotline advocates death threats. And they led a cyber attack on our hotline, which made it impossible for victims and survivors to get the help they needed. And so, as you can imagine, it was a really harrowing and traumatizing experience for the organization. And so when I heard about this after I joined, I was actually very terrified because it's one thing to think about domestic terrorism in a very theoretical sense. It's a whole other thing when the threat is knocking on your door. 
And I was worried that the attack on Polaris was actually a leading indicator of something much bigger. Um, because while QAnon was not yet you know, part of our mainstream discourse in the way that it is now, the patterns of QAnon followed a very similar disinformation playbook that we've seen used by other adversarial actors. You know, it's the same way ISIS used propaganda to recruit women into their fold. It's the same way Saudi Arabia launched a disinformation campaign to discredit their enemies. And it's the same way the Russian Internet Research Agency had subverted the 2016 US election. And so the way that I saw it, the, the COVID pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, the upcoming presidential election, it was all seeming to create this perfect storm of tension. And it was clear to me that we were just barreling towards an inflection point that would soon come to head on November 3rd. And in a weird way, you were the perfect person that Polaris could have had because, you know, just let's look at your background for a minute, right? Uh, you were at Palantir, of course, where there was this huge, there's a, it has a huge national security focus with domestic and, and global terrorism uh, in, the, in terms of, you know, the, the clients for the data analytics platform. Uh, and, uh, and you and I uh, both worked at Palantir. And then you went to Callisto, which is a nonprofit that uh, builds advanced cryptographic technology to combat sexual assault. And then you went to Aspen Institute where you were a tech policy fellow, where you were working on preventing mass gun violence by white supremacist terrorists. And last but not least, you're an independent consultant for the Homeland Security Advisory Council that supports the country's top national security advisors on cybersecurity policy. So in a weird way, you had like the perfect mix of skills uh, that brought you to when the point at Polaris where all of a sudden there were these QAnon attacks. Uh, and so uh, what were your thoughts then once you started to learn more about the QAnon attacks, how they uh, evolved and, and what it meant for Polaris? Yeah, it's, it's uh, it's a strange coincidence that this, the timing worked out the way it did, I suppose. Um, I think for me, when I, when I joined Polaris a year ago, what worried me the most was that QAnon was a triple threat, right? Not only is it undermining the anti-trafficking movement, but it could threaten our democratic institutions, our elections, and worst of all, it could be a force multiplier for violent extremism. And this feeling was really deepened in July of 2020 when QAnon launched a child sex trafficking conspiracy against Wayfair, the online furniture retailer. And even though you know, Polaris wasn't the direct target of the attack this time, the deluge of dis and misinformation had devastating impacts on the anti-human trafficking apparatus. And so in that moment, Polaris decided we needed to act. So what was the Wayfair conspiracy theory that was promoted by QAnon? The Wayfair conspiracy claimed that the furniture retailer was actually trafficking children in their overpriced cabinets. And while that sounds um, absolutely ridiculous, what made it particularly concerning is that this narrative um, actually spilled into more mainstream forums. And it was one of the first conspiracy theories that manifested on Reddit, not just these fringe platforms. And so what you're now seeing is that the folks who were calling the hotline were not just, um, people maliciously spreading disinformation, but it was also you know, your, your mom on, on Facebook who was calling the hotline concerned about these, these poor children. And so it was, a, it was a watershed moment in the movement when we started to see these conspiracies spill over into the mainstream. And 
before Wayfair, when QAnon started to attack Polaris and make these human trafficking allegations, what started that? Can you? That's an amazing story. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I, I hate to say that I'm now a QAnon historian because I know way too much about <laughs> their origin story. But this goes all the way back, if you, if you want to kind of think about where this started, um, uh, around the time of Pizzagate, which was actually uh, is a predecessor to the QAnon movement. And this actually, again, is building off of the 2016 election after um, the email leak from the DNC. And so a number of highly motivated um, folks on internet message boards started pouring over the trove of John Podesta's emails and started to make these kind of nonsensical um, connections between a pizza, pizza shop in Washington, DC and a child trafficking ring. And well, we then saw in, in a few months later, um, the Pizzagate uh, attack on the pizza shop here in DC, where an armed gunman went to a pizza shop and thought that he was rescuing children from a basement and there, there was not even a basement to be had. And fast forward to after Donald Trump was elected, uh, that's really when the QAnon movement actually first came to light and um, an anonymous poster posted pretending that they were in fact a government insider with top secret Q clearance who had the insights on this very insidious, um, deep state, uh, satanic cabal of human trafficking. Where that then led to involving Polaris is in the aftermath in, in 2018, all of that chatter resulted in um, a Q drop uh, that distinctly targeted Polaris because of a Twitter kerfuffle between Chelsea Clinton and some Twitter trolls. And the Q drop literally accused the trafficking hotline of being part of the Clinton Foundation. And the rest is, is history from there. And a Q drop, for those who don't know what that is, is what? It was essentially a, a post um, by who was now, we have theories of who this person was, but um, at the time it was an anonymous post by someone pretending to be Q that would leave this in these breadcrumbs for uh, their followers uh, to kind of follow the rabbit hole and figure out the, the secret behind this, this global cabal. So how was Pizzagate affiliated with the Clintons? The, the crux of, of a lot of these conspiracies was centered around Hillary Clinton in the, in the aftermath of the 2016 election. And one of the, the conspiracies origin stories was centered around the Clinton Foundation um, being the antagonist behind this child uh, pedophile ring uh, with, with global reach. And so when, our, it, when we became into the fold, it actually was through this accusation that Polaris was part of the Clinton Foundation and therefore that the hotline was actually a front uh, for something more sinister that obviously wasn't true. So Anjana, why do you think so many people believe in uh, a, a lot of these really crazy, wacky conspiracy theories? You know, I think the, the widespread coverage of Jeffrey Epstein's indictment and arrest and death have only served to fuel this idea because it really allows those who are aiming to spread conspiracies to really bait people in with a very true but very extreme case of human trafficking. You know, in many ways, Epstein's method of force, fraud, and coercion are actually very typical of human trafficking cases. You know, he was a very wealthy and powerful man who used his resources to identify and groom and recruit and exploit vulnerable girls 
especially those coming from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. But QAnon followers were much less interested in exploring the underlying systemic inequities that enabled Epstein to commit his crimes for so long, and instead focused on these very partisan and extreme details of his private islands and his famous friends, which then fueled the false narratives about a celebrity pedophile ring at the highest levels of power. Fascinating. And, and you mentioned how many women are, uh, you know, prone to believing a lot of these rumors. Um, one of our previous guests who was on this podcast wondered if maybe the high numbers of women who say they have been uh, the victim of a sexual assault of some kind may have may also play a part in some of that. Have you seen that? Uh, and what do you think of that uh, uh, that theory? I think the important takeaway here is, you know, as we counter disinformation about trafficking fueled by QAnon, we have to continue to remain survivor centered. And I think this is why it's so important for organizations like Polaris to, to be leading the conversation and holding that nuance. You know, we can be we can denounce QAnon without denouncing the realities of sexual violence. And I think that is incredibly important to do. So how did Pizzagate affect Polaris? Ultimately, it, the conspiracy around child sex trafficking lingered on long after um, Pizzagate and the accusations of the Democratic and Hollywood elite became a core tenet of the QAnon conspiracy. And ultimately, the conspiracy theory accused Polaris of being part of this global cabal. So here you were, you were CTO of Polaris, and all of a sudden, you know, you were dealing with a uh, crazy organization and a, a, a very serious threat. Uh, so what, what, was your, what were your next actions and recommendations for Polaris? So right after the Wayfair conspiracy, it was clear we needed to do something. And so we decided uh, to build a security strategy that could protect our organization against this threat. And simply put, in order to defend our mission, we need to do four things. We need to defend the reputation of our movement and our organization. We need to defend the operations of our hotline. We need to defend the physical safety of our people. And we need to defend the cybersecurity of our data. And in order to do all of this effectively, it has to be rooted in a systems change data-driven approach. So what did you do next? So because I had realized that this problem was incredibly complex, we wanted to take a very multidisciplinary approach. And so we established a strategic partnership with the Sufan Group, which is a leading global security firm, and their partner Limbic, which is a content science company. And we worked together to build an AI model that can analyze disinformation on the major social media platforms by looking at two key factors. And so the first factor is how believable is this content? And the second is, is there foreign influence on that content? And so by defining these thresholds, we could start to quantify the risk of disinformation going viral before it actually happens. And so we were then able to integrate our hotline call volume into the model. So we could start seeing when these online behaviors converted into offline actions. And so by the time the election came around, we had really shifted from a very defensive stance to an offensive posture. And we were not only able to predict the emerging QAnon narratives that were becoming prominent each week, but we were now able to build a daily forecast of call volume to the hotline based on the rising disinformation. And as a result, we were now in a position to prepare for that stochastic demand. And that's been hugely transformational for us. 
So how has that changed things? I mean, and and as you were going into the the November elections, you were not probably surprised to see the chatter, right? And and leading out of the the November elections, none of that was coming as a surprise to you because you'd already started to look into it. Yeah. And so, you know, once we got ourselves into a secure posture, you know, put our own oxygen mask on, we started to then translate our knowledge into advocacy work. And so in the fall, we had launched an entire comms campaign focused on debunking rumors and myths about human trafficking. We had helped bring together 90 organizations in the anti-trafficking movement to sign an open letter denouncing QAnon. And we had called upon Republican House leadership to deny committee assignments to the members who had openly promoted QAnon theories. And so as the year was ending, we started to see some disturbing patterns of how human trafficking disinformation was being used to radicalize susceptible audiences into violent extremist behaviors. And so our team felt that we should share our findings in a policy paper to share with the new administration. And little did we know that we were just days away from an insurrection. So that leads us to January 6th and all of the madness of that day. Uh, What was that like watching it unfold on television after all of this this deep research and analysis uh, that you had done and all all of the things you were finding? Yeah, I mean, the attack on January 6th was horrifying for everyone in this country because, you know, it was a domestic terrorist attack on our democracy's most sacred space. And, you know, I'm, I'm not alone in saying this, but the imagery was, was so haunting. You know, the, the gallows and the noose outside the Capitol conjures images from the Turner Diaries. Confederate flags were being waved, right? These are flags that represent a fictitious white supremacist nation. People were wearing, you know, sweatshirts that said Camp Auschwitz and other Holocaust and Nazi paraphernalia. And so it, it was incredibly upsetting. And January 6th will always be a very dark day in our nation's history. I think for us at Polaris, it was especially bone chilling because the very worst thing we had been saying could happen actually happened. And the people who you know, were showing up in our weekly briefings were now suddenly all over our television screens attacking the Capitol. And so these very people who had been sending us death threats for years were now uh, you know, all, over, all over the news. And so, yeah, it was especially painful. Um, and at the very same time, it was also you know, a wake up call and it was very motivating for our team to put pen to paper and and very forcefully and full-throatedly say what we wanted to say about this. And that's what we ended up doing in our report. So people like uh, Jacob Chansley, also known as QAnon Shaman, who was sort of one of the most visible people on on the Hill that day, those were people you were already investigating, right? Yeah. And and again, we were doing it more just to protect ourselves. It was more where are these narratives coming from and and how do we counter that disinformation? And uh, now suddenly it's... um, his face is, is incredibly infamous across across the country. So tell me a little bit about how this uh, report that you produced uh, countering QAnon, understanding the role of human trafficking in the disinformation extremist nexus come about? Well, it was, it was uh, something we had been planning on writing for a long time, um, but the sense of urgency wasn't as high. We, we thought we'd, you know, put our, our findings in a policy paper and, and share it with the administration and maybe in, after the first hundred days or so, so that they could settle in. Um, and then, you know, on January 7th, we said, okay, I guess we need to, to write it now. <laughs> um, and so I think for us at Polaris, it was really about, as we have a national conversation about what happened, 
Yes, we need to talk about the role of social media platforms and disinformation. Yes, we need to talk about the future of prosecuting domestic terrorism crimes. But the question that we also need to be asking is what brought people to the Capitol in the first place? And that really comes down to the role human trafficking played. And so the report that we wrote uh, in collaboration with the Sufan Group and Limbic really focused on four uh, key findings that we're able to share publicly. And what were those findings? The first one says that disinformation about human trafficking serves as a gateway narrative that radicalizes susceptible audiences to condone and even perform acts of violence and terrorism. And this ultimately poses a threat to the national security of the United States. And, you know, the insurrection is actually a really tragic case study because two of the women who died, Ashley Babbitt and Roseanne Boyland, whose names we now come to become very familiar with, they were both radicalized by human trafficking conspiracies. When we analyzed Ashley Babbitt's social media, we can see that her radicalization patterns were rooted in child trafficking conspiracies for several years. But in contrast, Roseanne Boyland had been radicalized extremely quickly, and she first started posting QAnon content after the Wayfair conspiracy itself, so just only a few months. And so the takeaway for us is that human trafficking narratives are a very effective topic to quote unquote, you know, red pill people into violent ideologies. And what's really interesting is that women are actually more susceptible to being radicalized by these narratives. And we think it's because it appeals to their altruism to protect children. And our data showed that women are 50% more likely than men to be classified as QAnon fence sitters, meaning they are more likely to fall for these narratives. And that, that ties in well with previous research about counterterrorism, uh, because we've seen, especially with Salafi jihadist groups, women are also using narratives about children being harmed to recruit. And so what this means is that it forebodes that these types of narratives will be used in the future by other groups as well. And what else did you find? Well, the second finding has a direct impact on uh, how harmful disinformation is to victims and survivors of human trafficking. And so at Polaris, we actually analyzed the amount of time we spent on nonsense calls about the Wayfair conspiracy. And so a typical trafficking case results in about 2.5 signals to the hotline. In contrast, the Wayfair case alone was 536 signals, each of which contained no actionable information for us to use. Now, what that translates to is that the time we spent responding to disinformation about Wayfair could have instead been spent responding to an additional 42 trafficking cases. Now, when you consider that in all of 2019, there were only 600 federal prosecutions of human trafficking, 42 is a really big number. And Wayfair is not the only conspiracy theory we dealt with that summer. So when you compound that number with all of the dis and misinformation, you can start to see how this has a devastating impact on the anti-trafficking movement. What is interesting to me, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about this Wayfair uh, conspiracy and what they were saying about Wayfair is that some of these, most of these ideas are so far-fetched and yet there generates a massive following, which goes back to your point of the susceptibility, particularly among women who want to do the right thing to fall for these kinds of ideas. Exactly. And that actually is what our third finding shows, which is, which, which comes from a study we ran um, called a believability classification survey. And this is, uh, was driven by our partners, Limbic, who came up with this proprietary survey. And we ran the survey between November 4th, 2020 
and January 7th, 2021, with a nationally representative sample of nearly 16,000 respondents, so a very large sample size. And through this survey, we learned that 21% of U.S. adults self-identify as QAnon believers, which is alarming. And when we asked the question, to what extent do you agree with this statement? I believe elites, politicians, and celebrities are involved in global pedophilia rings, and we need to hashtag save our children. A whopping 41% of U.S. adults agreed or strongly agreed. What does that tell you? Well, it shows that many people are susceptible to these narratives. And in contrast, only 18% of U.S. adults firmly rejected the idea that elites, politicians, and celebrities are involved in global pedophilia rings. So what this means is the remaining 82% of the U.S. population are at risk of being susceptible to believing this narrative, which means that if you are a violent extremist organization, this becomes an incredibly potent gateway uh, narrative for you to recruit folks into a more radical and violent um, ideology. And we're seeing that happening right now, which is what the fourth finding shows, which is that violent anti-government extremists, white supremacists, and neo-Nazis who were not originally associated with QAnon have appeared to caught on to the allure and the trick of using conspiracies about child trafficking to radicalize and recruit new members. And so this is very concerning because they are co-opting these disillusioned QAnon followers into these more violent groups. And that can expand the pool of individuals who are willing to commit acts of violence and terrorism. And what we've seen in the deplatforming on social media is that now these groups are migrating to encrypted chat platforms. And so what we saw in January was that a white supremacy channel on Telegram with almost 3,000 followers posted about how to use a narrative of elites being baby-eating pedophiles as a way to specifically recruit QAnon followers. And so what this forebodes is this will continue to happen in the, in the future, agnostic of the extremist group or the technology platform. So where do we go from here? I mean, uh, what's the solution? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I'm a bearer of more bad news. Um, you know, even though Trump is no longer in office and QAnon has been deplatformed from mainstream social media companies, the, the landscape ahead of us is still very dangerous for the anti-human trafficking movement. And there are a couple of trends that I think are very concerning. You know, first, QAnon will remain an enduring threat because it has become a big tent conspiracy and the movement is splintering. So the next four years will be pretty important for the QAnon movement because they perceive that the so-called deep state is, a, is, a, is in political power. And this can give birth to more conspiracy theories within the QAnon umbrella. And since at its core, the conspiracy is centered around human trafficking disinformation, this is a big concern to us at Polaris. The second trend um, is actually came from the ODNI's recently released unclassified report on domestic violent extremism. And they had labeled uh, racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists and violent uh, militia violent extremists as the most serious threat to the US homeland. Um, and so as Polaris continues to fight forcefully for racial justice, it means we increase our risk profile from these violent actors. The other really interesting trend and, and frankly concerning trend is something that the field calls salad bar ideology, which basically means that you know, violent actors are picking and choosing ideologies to fit their hateful creed. And the most well-known example of this is actually in the climate change movement, which we call eco-fascism, which is when um, someone combines 
very militant environmentalism with white supremacist extremism. Um, and so given that human trafficking is equally a complex problem with intersecting narratives, it means that our movement is also at risk of being cherry picked by extremists to justify their hate in a violence in a similar way. And then finally, you know, today's disinformation landscape is more diverse in terms of capable actors, including state and non-state actors, especially Russia and China. And what we've seen in recent weeks is that as is that the Chinese Communist Party is willing to target organizations and governments who comment or oppose human rights abuses in the region. So as Polaris continues to speak out against human trafficking, both domestically and globally, it can carry significant cybersecurity risks for us as well. And, and where do nonprofits like Polaris fit in this fight, right? One, one thinks of nonprofits traditionally, you know, at least in the old days, right, uh, as sort of somewhat state, perhaps slow-moving entities, uh, perhaps, you know, mired in a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, and, you know, and then, of course, you've got very cutting-edge uh, uh, organizations like Polaris and all of this amazing work that you've been doing over the past few years. Um, and so where do, where do nonprofits belong? Does, do they all have to be like Polaris in adoption of technology and, and thinking through a different lens? I mean, I'm obviously very biased uh, as, as a technologist myself, um, but yeah, I think this is exactly why, um, you know, we see our, our approach as being technology enabled, because at the end of the day, this has to be an evidence-based movement, and we need to be thinking about what the facts are based on, on the data that we're seeing. Um, you know, the human trafficking movement is notoriously data poor. It's a very hard problem to quantify and measure. And every time we, we publish our data, we, we caveat it very heavily um, about what this data does tell us and what it doesn't. And so I think one of the things we need to continue to support is how do we um, think about using technology responsibly uh, in a way to not only help victims and survivors, but also be good stewards of, of data ethics because too much data collection can also open up um, some privacy and, and civil liberties concerns that are equally concerning. So what do we need that we lack right now in terms of technology tools? Uh, I mean, you've used some very cutting edge tools like cryptography in domestic violence, and you've testified before Congress uh, about the role of technology in fighting human trafficking. What, what are the things we have and what are the things we need? Um, things like cryptography and encryption or other tools? Yeah, I think you know in the, in the survivor-centered space, Technology can be actually a really powerful weapon in the arsenal uh, in these fights. And so, you know, I think as people are building products, the, the key tenant, I think, is to constantly be centering the victim and the survivor. Because I think one of the, the challenges we're seeing when building technology products is sometimes in an effort to um, move this movement forward, we take on a, a bit of a paternalistic approach. And, and we, what we talk a lot about at Polaris is that we don't want to be in the rescue business. It, it's not our job to, to rescue anyone. It's our job to restore power. Um, and that's a really key tenant, I believe, in survivor-centered work. And so I think, again, this goes back to why this is such a complex system and is not as simple as pulling just one lever. We have to think about all of the, the levers, whether that be policy levers, market dynamics, cultural dynamics, all of these things actually need to inform the way we think about these problems. I mean, it's been an incredibly eventful year for you and looking at all the work you did prior, you know, on cryptography and domestic terrorism, human trafficking, all the all the stuff you did at Palantir and 
Callisto and the Aspen Institute, looking back at this a year of learning for you, what would you say has been sort of the biggest takeaway for you on all these things and, and this year that it's been? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I think, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, the first, I'm an engineer by training and, you know, I, I did my undergrad and graduate work at Cornell and I, I do credit them for getting me interested in, in kind of these complex and, and gnarly problems. Um, but I think the, the complex system that I've always been the most interested in has been human rights work because when systems are broken, injustice happens. And so I think for me, the takeaway is um, having the, you know, the patience and the confidence to sit in the complexity um, rather than trying to oversimplify something, but at the same time, making sure that we're communicating this in a way that is easy to understand. And that I think is, is not an easy task. And one, I think Polaris is, um, as, as leaders of this movement are, are excited to, to kind of shift in, in the way we talk about human trafficking. And you know what I've noticed, especially in the last year is, you know, even though we're seeing the, the rise of QAnon and we're aware of the role of disinformation, that doesn't make human trafficking any less of a real problem. You know, I think at the end of the day, that's um, a really important thing to remember. When a lot of people think about human trafficking, they envision, you know, Liam Neeson from Taken, and that is not an accurate representation at all. Um, it's actually the end result of a range of other persistent injustices and inequities in our society and our economy. And so simply arresting traffickers will not by itself end human trafficking because it's, it's too complex. It's, there's too much out there. And so if we want to fundamentally reduce the amount of trafficking we have to actually change the conditions that make trafficking possible in the first place. You know, traffickers, they, they pinpoint what people need and then they pretend to give it to them. You know, maybe it's, it's a job or an apartment, maybe it's, you know, love or, or a sense of belonging. And these traffickers, they target communities where the needs are greatest, right? These are communities struggling with poverty and addiction and trauma. So if we wanna disarm the traffickers, we have to actually create a world where those needs are met by somebody other than the trafficker. And what that ultimately means is we need to fix the broken systems that fail to meet those needs. And that includes fixing our foster care system and having affordable housing and worker protections and immigration and criminal justice and on and on. But it also does mean that we need to go deeper because preventing trafficking means you know, facing the fallout of racism and sexism and economic discrimination. And so that's why at Polaris, we see the fight against human trafficking as a fight for social justice, because it means that we need to repair the damage done by these, you know, unjust and unequal policies that have over generations led to greater needs in some communities over others. You know, I was thinking that when you first started uh, talking to folks at, Pol at Polaris about uh, Q, what QAnon really meant, the threat that it really represented. You were barely, what, uh, 90 days into your job at Polaris and they'd never had a CTO before. And here you were like, all of a sudden, you were, you know, just raising alarms about something that they knew was, was serious, but all of a sudden you were putting it in an entirely new light, right? What was the response? And I'm curious, looking back, are you are you kind of glad you were you were right? Were there moments when you felt like, God, I hope I'm right about this thing? I mean, I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I hope no one. Um, I think part of like security work is preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Um, you know, I was I was actually pleasantly surprised at how quickly Polaris, uh, you know, grokked the problem. 
And I think it's not surprising because, you know, at the end of the day, Polaris is in the business of dismantling human trafficking networks and taking down dangerous adversaries. And our hotline advocates spend every single day responding to calls of survivors in crisis and helping them build their safety plans. And so when you go to an organization like that and you talk about security and you just reframe it as this is what we already do, we are now facing a new adversary called QAnon and we're building a safety plan for ourselves, then it becomes, it, it clicks. And so I, I have to commend that not just the leadership at Polaris, but everyone at the organization is, is taking this, the values of security to be really tightly aligned with our mission, because at the end of the day, if we're not able to protect ourselves, it, it doesn't help victims and survivors either. You know, one last question I had in wrapping up is a lot of the political temperature in this country is has been lowered, at least for now, compared to where we were in November, December, and of course, January, leading up to January 6th. But the sense I'm getting from you is even though the political temperature is down, uh, the threat remains from QAnon and similar groups, that it's simmering under the surface just ready for the next provocation. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And and what do you see, I mean, in, in, from what you're seeing in, in the data that's coming in as to how it might manifest itself or how how things are right now, the things that we don't see under the surface? I think at the end of the day, and we talk about this when we talk about the disinformation extremism nexus at large, right? The way this, this grows is by exploiting political fault lines. And you know, human trafficking is one of the few issues that is a bipartisan issue. And so the over-politicization of human trafficking is, I think, the red flag we need to be very careful about. Because once you start to politicize something, then you've now created sides. And when you create sides, that's when these narratives become exploitative. And that's when, when it becomes exploitative, that's what leads to political violence. And so I think what we have to be very careful about is as we speak about this issue, we need to be disciplined. And, and I say this not just Polaris, but everybody who cares about this topic needs to be very disciplined about speaking about this credibly with, with truth. And that applies to people on all sides of the political aisle, not just on, on the right. And I think we need to be very um, committed to saying, if you care about protecting our democracy, if you care about fighting for racial justice, if you care about preventing violent extremism, then you need to be really thoughtful about how do we talk about human trafficking in a way that recognizes that this problem is not as simple as we like to think it is. Anjana, thank you so much for joining me today and for this fascinating conversation. It was so great to speak with you. Anjana Rajan is the Chief Technology Officer of Polaris, a non-governmental organization that's leading a data-driven social justice movement to fight human trafficking. Rajan's expertise is applying cryptography to human rights and national security issues. She's the former Chief Technology Officer at Callisto, a nonprofit that builds advanced cryptographic technology to combat sexual assault. Recently, Rajan was a tech policy fellow at the Aspen Institute, where she worked on preventing mass gun violence caused by white supremacist terrorists. She's also an independent consultant to the Homeland Security Advisory Council that supports the country's top national security leaders on cybersecurity policy. Rajan has testified before Congress as an expert witness to speak about ways technology can protect survivors and victims of human trafficking. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. 
Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.